didn't sound anything like the movie, but welcome to the Cabinet Dr. Howdy's podcast. We're back, motherfuckers. Like a heart attack. Are you sick right now? Yeah, I got it. I got I got I got some notes. You got something going on. I don't like it. Yeah. I'm gonna give it to you, man. <laughs> What'd you do if total recall eyes started happening? Yeah. <laughs> you bastards! <laughs> you got COVID, bro. Nah man, I'm good on COVID. Yeah, I bet you are. I got the vaccine. <laughs> I'm Will, and I got my man here, Gordon's Harry Taint. And I got my man, David Caruso Love Hole. There Ooh, you go. This love Hole is so good. And if that didn't give it away, uh, if that didn't give away what we're talking about, I'm sure everyone knows because you already kind of posted it on Instagram on what this whole thing was going to yeah, be. Yeah, the, the, the 50 people that watch my story, I don't know about it, maybe. Yeah, I, I get like 10. About 20, you know what I mean? They only watch it when I show my dick off. Um, <laughs> we're going over the 2001 psychological horror thriller, whatever the fuck you want to call it, Session 9. For those who don't know what Session 9 is, spoiler alerts are ahead. I would say that, you know, it is probably one of the top five horror movies of the past 20 years. Absolutely. Great fucking movie. And when we say horror, we're not talking fucking top five slasher fuck i'm talking about and he's and, and jeff's probably talking about full-on fucking horror like scary as shit to me yeah. it's scary as fuck yeah when i think of early 2000s you know late 90s even horror movies there's not a lot that really scare me there's not a lot that really make me feel uneasy when i'm watching and this one did you know what i mean and we'll talk we'll talk about that a little later on but um it is. It's a very effective movie. It's very, very intelligent too, and that's what I love about it. I, it's it's very, very well done. Um, it, it's it's definitely a um, a movie for inspiration for any kind of filmmaker too, because of how they worked with their environment as well. Um, right. And it was directed by a man named Brad Anderson, yes. who went on to do The Machinist. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. With Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. Who lost like like what like he was down to like a hundred pounds or something when he filmed Bro, this that movie? Sick freak ate like an apple and drank whiskey a day yeah. or shit like that, like a weird fucking diet. Christian Bale's a fucking freak, bro. He is. He's a total method actor. He um, <laughs> I thought you were gonna say he's a total meth addict. I mean, he might be. You don't know. You know, he he is a little crazy on set, from what I hear. Um, but Machinist is another really good psychological kind of Hitchcock like horror movie. What I love about Brad Anderson as a director is he foregoes the gore. And, you know, me, me and you, we always talk about how much we love gore. I love gore. You know what yeah. I mean? But sometimes you just need a movie that creeps you out in different ways other than at a visceral level. You know, and I think Brad Anderson's movies really do that. And uh, from what I understand, he hasn't really done a whole lot of horror since then. You know? Yeah, I think there was something on Netflix that he did that was like psychological, but it right. wasn't like a horror movie. It was more on the psychological thriller aspect of things. Um, I don't know too much about the director, um, but what I do know is that he got this inspiration to make this film from living in Massachusetts and driving by the Danvers Insane Asylum, Asylum. State Hospital, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever you want to call it, whatever's okay to call it nowadays. Well, well um, let's make it PC, okay? PC. It's the Danvers Hospital. When we posted the picture, when you posted the picture of Rue Moore magazine, uh, Ant of the Dead, really cool guy, awesome fucking posts. Um, he actually hit me up and was like, yo, I used to fucking go there and like we would skip school and go into the Danvers because I lived right near it. We would go and explore and shit like that. I was like, dude, you're a fucking like, you're a nut job. Yeah. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I mean, I we'll talk about that a little, little later on. I've explored some uh, mental asylums, some closed down ones in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and they're creepy Not as shit. Good. But the, the article that you're referencing is called I Live in the Weak and the Wounded, which is the infamous last quote of the movie. It's a really good article, really, really informative. So a lot of the information that we're going to pull out um, has been from this article and just kind of some other stuff that we've seen. But the Danvers State Hospital construction was started in 1874. They started admitting patients in 1878. So it had a long history. You have to think in context of the time 
Brad Anderson, the director, actually talks about this in the interview that he does in Rumor. He's basically saying that when he went to Danvers State Hospital to look, you know, kind of kind of scout the location, he looked at these old records of patients. And this must have been from the 1940s, 1950s. And these patients were institutionalized for mortified pride, quote unquote, or disappointed expectations. So you have people that were institutionalized in these places for things like manic depression or OCD, things that are completely manageable nowadays, right? You just go see, you know, you can go and talk with a um, a therapist and you can figure out coping mechanisms to, to help yourself. But these people during that time were institutionalized for this stuff. So I think, I think a lot of the times too, back in the day, it was almost like a family pride thing too. Like yeah. if you're, if your kid, your son or your daughter, um, you know, was acting with OCD or, or who knows, even had a small form of autism and mm-hmm. raged out here and there with certain yes. things, you were a scumbag. And you were afraid of what people were going to think of you. And you would put these young kids in fucking in, in hospitals. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And you'd have people just take care of them. You know, you had things like shock therapy during mm-hmm. this time, you know, all sorts of these like very draconian style methods of dealing with mental illness. So Danvers was uh, one of these hospitals that was known for, you know, uh, you know, being on the cutting edge of mental illness. But now that we look back on it, we're like, wow, these places were absolutely barbaric. Danvers apparently was notable for being the place that perfected the free, the prefrontal lobotomy. If you talk about lobotomizing people nowadays, you know, you, you look like a psycho, but I always want to do it to somebody in a fight. Like if I ever get in a bar, like I'm old now, I don't really get in fights anymore, but I want to just hold somebody down like no country for old men and just frontal lobotomize them with a fucking pen. You know, it reminds me of like my, my history classes. I'm a world history teacher during our middle ages unit. I always talk about like medical techniques and like how just barbaric they were because they were all based on religion and superstition. One of the famous ones is trepanning and that's where they if someone was crazy or someone, you know, had depression or someone had OCD or they, you know, they exhibited these signs of, you know, that wasn't quote unquote normal, right? They would um, take this person and they believe that they had demons inside of their head, right? So they would literally pound a hole into their skull to release the demon or they would cut people to bleed them. You know what I mean? And this is just the crazy stuff. You know, med- you know, our knowledge of the medical field has changed, right? So much. And, you know, that's what I love about this movie is that you see, you know, this this element of this kind of old-fashioned style, you know, understanding of, uh, you know, mental illness. You know what I mean? Danvers actually inspired H.P. Lovecraft, who, you know, the cosmic horror writer. He used Danvers basically to... Uh, create Arkham Sanatorium mm-hmm. and for his story, The Thing on the Doorstep. So, you know, Danvers existed um, up until the 1980s. You know, you had Ronald Reagan and you had a lot of the uh, state governments deinstitutionalizing places, basically kicking the people out onto the streets. That's why you had such a homeless problem in the 1980s. Yep. The deinstitutionalization. Yeah, Reagan era, absolutely. Yeah. And by 2007, you know, a lot of these places were just abandoned. They were abandoned places. They, you know, they, they don't have them anymore. And uh, actually, 2007, the majority of Danvers State Hospital was demolished. And I believe from the article, they said that they're condominiums now. Which you can I don't go know. fuck yourself. I yeah. wouldn't live on that condominium. Yeah, I don't think I want to live there. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, no way. You could another, only pay another cool thing um, you brought up fucking H.P. Lovecraft for his like, inspiration. I found this out, and I'm not a big video game nerd, but I know a lot of people are. Uh, supposedly, the Brookhaven Hospital in Silent Hill 3. Oh, was, yeah. Was was based off of the Danvers and from Session 9. It wasn't even just off the Danvers. They watched Session 9 and went off that whole entire asylum and, and the look of it and everything like that, which I thought was pretty cool because Silent Hill is a cool game. Oh, Silent yeah. Hills are phenomenal games. Silent Hill 2 especially, man. I wanted to really get the history of Danvers to really put it into people's minds on, on 
the movie, the environment, and what and what the actors actually went through going in here. Because I am, I don't believe in like, I don't believe in ghosts. Right. I don't either. Right? I don't. I really don't believe in ghosts, <clears throat> but I believe in energy, like bad energy, and yep. you know what I mean, like bad vibes. And we'll get into that a little later as well with the production and everything like that. But um, I remember when I first heard about this movie, I was probably shit, man, maybe twelve. 13 I'm not really sure how young I was um and my uncle my uncle Sean he lived in California and he would always be the guy that would call my mom and be like I just saw this really cool movie yada 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 so he ended up um visiting New Jersey right and he comes over and he went he goes and rents the fucking movie and he brings it over and I'm a horror guy you know oh, artist. so he puts it on I'm watching it and you know, it starts out like a movie that at the time, my age, I'm not really, I'm into slashers and stuff like that, you know? But then my eyes just started getting glued onto it. And I start getting into the story and the environment, the soundtrack and everything that's going on. And I, I start getting actually creeped out. I felt like I was watching The Exorcist almost, like how I felt when I watched that for the first time. And I remember when the movie ended with that quote and it just ends so desolate. I had school the next day and I was like, all right, I'm going upstairs to go to sleep. And I went upstairs and I just had this eerie feeling. And we'll get into that later on too, because it really touches on a lot of shit, that ending scene, you know, but what, what was your first like experience with this movie? So I actually saw it a lot later on. I saw it on Netflix, probably in like 2009 might've been around that time. It was streaming on Netflix, and I was watching it by myself at nighttime. I oh, remember cool. I got I got off on an afternoon shift, and I was just sitting on the couch watching it. I remember just watching it and being like genuinely creeped out by it, you know, like very suspenseful because I didn't know. I was expecting some jump scares, and they don't deliver on the jump scares, but the atmosphere of it and the tension they just they 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 turn it up. I remember watching it really late at night because that's that's the kind of movie it is for me. Is it's a movie you got to watch late at night. You have to be in the in, uh, the uh, right environment for it. You know what I'm saying? You can't have your buddies around you drinking and laughing, right? You got to be glued to it, like you were saying. Yep. I was watching it alone, which was perfect, so I could just take it all and I could soak it all up. Like I said, I just remember being really, really just unnerved by it. Um, I was very, very unnerved by Mary Hobbs' voice. When they get into the recordings and you start hearing her voice for the first time, I remember hearing that and being like, ooh, like this kind of leaves me with a... It doesn't leave me with a good feeling. You know? It felt like something you shouldn't be watching. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Well, And I kept having to turn the volume down because I was scared something was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I was getting nervous, right? The only other movie that ever really did that to me from, like, where we're talking newer horror movies was The House of the Devil. Okay. Which I really like that one, Ty West. Same thing. He he just kind of racks up the suspense and the tension, right? Yeah, it was, it was, it was just a great experience, though. Like, uh, I've watched it many times since then. But it's one of those movies I wish I could go back to feeling like the way I did the first time watching it. You know, what I, I mean? think I feel like that every. So like really? I've, I, I don't have mental illness. I, luckily, I've never dealt with that or anything like that. I dealt with anger and stuff like that as a kid, like a hooligan fighting right. people and shit. I've I'm very close to people that have mental illness, and it very much like I, I know someone very close to me that won't watch the movie at all. Right. It just it just freaks them out way too much. Right. And it, it hits home way too much to the point where like they can't even they, they don't even want to hear the fucking title of the movie. You know right. what I mean? And I think that's why it's so fucking like it's a it's a penetrating movie. It is, yeah. It's it, effective. It, 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 it really does fuck you up watching it. And even if you've never dealt with mental illness, you don't know someone that deals with mental illness, it still will fuck you up in a certain way. And right. you got them tryhards on Instagram that are like, I don't know what people are talking about. This movie's not even that scary. Go fuck off. Because this is, you know what I mean? This you is know, it's, it's, one of, it's one of those movies, like I said, you have to be, you have to be in the right frame of mind when you watch such a It's nine. real, it's real grown adult shit. It is, yeah. And it's a That's serious what it movie. 
Brad Anderson even said that in the article that you sent me. He said, I wanted to make a horror movie for adults. Yeah. Well, he was sick of seeing movies like Scream. He was sick of <laughs> he was sick of seeing movies like, you know, I know what you did last summer. These teeny horror, you know, kind of self-referential like slasher movies. You know what I mean? And Paint that's by what, numbers. Yeah, and and that's what and that's what defined that era. You know, I grew up in that era. I was a teenager around that time, and I remember all those movies that came out. Not all of them were terrible, but I remember that it was a dime a dozen. You know what I mean? It, it was probably how a lot of the older people in the eighties felt about slasher movies. You know what I mean? They were like, "This is a dime a dozen. These movies suck. Why can't they make a good movie like The Wolfman?" <laughs> Where's Dracula? The wolf man. The wolf man needs to come back out. I'm tired of Frank Zito. (laughs) Oh my god. The wolf man. The wolf man. No, it's true though. And he wanted to make a movie that was a little bit more serious. It it focused more on like the human aspect of horror and something that would scare people. And I think he did a good job. You know, it, it stands the test of time. It wasn't a big hit when it first came out. You know, like it said, they only made 375,000. And it was which, on U- USA Films, yeah. USA Channel. You know? <laughs> right. And Jeez. there was, and it's, he said that they didn't know how to promote the movie. Because the movies that were big at the time were remakes of 80s horror movies or slashers, you know, these teeny, you know, boppy kind of slashers. And you can kind of see it from the, the, the cover. The original cover is that brown, blurry cover with a guy in the background. It kind yeah. of looks like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre cover. It does, yeah. It does. I think they were playing off of that because they really did not know how to promote it. They're like, what are we going to do with this film, you know? Right. Well, and I think that's like how a lot of people go into it they they go into it with the wrong expectations to me this is a movie that you you really have to just open your mind up to you have to get off your phone you have to you have to be able to sit on your couch or wherever you're sitting turn off the lights get your turn, straight jacket on yeah t- turn up the sound and just watch the movie because that's what that's what makes it good. You know what I mean? Is is your attention on it? And the more I watch it, the more stuff I see. That Absolutely, I that's one. It's those. It's that type of movie yeah. where you watch it more and you see more shit. Yeah, and you're like, and oh damn. I know, Jeff. Uh, actually, you just uh, sold the DVD to somebody, so. I know she listens to our podcast a lot, yeah, Bree Harris. Bree Harris, yeah. yeah. Do not listen to this episode until you watch the goddamn movie. All right. Bree, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't fucking do it. Wait for wait for my package to come in. There you go. Or the wolf man will catch you. <laughs> Alright, so the movie, session nine, is about a asbestos removal company, right? And the foreman on the job is a man named Gordon, right? And I've never met a Gordon in my fucking life besides, you know, Gordon Ramsay and Gordon from the show. Well, he, well, he's well, he's apparently from Scotland in the movie. You know, he's a, he's a he's a European actor. Is that, a, is that like a UK thing? Yeah, what? I mean, I think so. You know, he he's Gordon Fleming is his name in the movie. And he actually they play it in the movie that he is a Scott, you know, he is a Scottish immigrant coming over yes. to the country to find the American dream, basically. It's funny, when I first watched the film, it's in Massachusetts, I'm thinking these like Boston blue collar motherfuckers, and this guy has an accent. I'm like, what's what's going on here? If you're from the uh, United Kingdom, England, whatever the fuck it is, tell me how many Gordons you know. I want you to fucking flood my direct messages. Because <laughs> I only know two. They're fictional, uh, not fictional, Gordon Ramsay's real. Gordon Ramsay is a figment of your imagination. <laughs> He's Simon. Gordon Ramsay's Simon. Yeah, you go. Do it, you fucking cunt! <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway. No, you fucking idiot. <laughs> Gordon is a Scottish immigrant, like Jeff said, and he is going for, and uh, in, in reading the article, he's going for the American dream. He's trying to start that company. He has a wife, a kid, a house now. His right-hand man is David Caruso's love hole. Um <laughs> 
But David Caruso's in it. That was the flair of the movie, I remember. Because I remember that was the one thing when I watched it, I was like, I feel uncomfortable because I don't know any of these actors. And I saw Caruso's, you know, like CSI. Yeah. yeah, red hair. And I'm like, God, oh, Caruso, how you feeling? Huh? David, David Crusoe was in CSI. He was in NYPD Blue. Oh, was he? I, yes. I know I knew him from CSI Miami. <laughs> yeah, David Crusoe's in NYPD Blue. Okay. Yeah, so he was in there. I knew I fucking knew that son of a bitch. Anyway, so uh, it gets to a bidding war for this Danvers State Asylum that removed the asbestos, right? It gets to a bidding war, and, uh, you know, Gordon realizes that a competition company for asbestos removal is going to underbid him basically right. and get it done in like, I think, what do you say? Like uh, two weeks or some shit. Right. Yep. Yeah. So then Gordon, it's a pure will move. I would do this on the job as well. <laughs> Our dick. We'll move, do it man. for the same amount of money, but we'll get it done in a week. In a week. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like a huge fucking job. And everyone's like, what the fuck? When he tells them, you know what I mean? There's very eerie things that happen when he walks into that fucking asylum. Yes. And the one thing that I remember I got chills from when I was a kid was when he walks in, and he looks down the hallway and he's here. Hello. <laughs> I'm like, what was that, man? Like, what the fuck was that? It, it, it just it just goes from there. So he has his assistants that are with him, right? So he's got Mike. Mike is a college dropout, very, very intelligent character. Mike is played by Steven Jevedon or Gevedon or whatever. Whoa. He, sexy he, name. he actually is one of the writers of Session 9. So he was friends with Brad Anderson. Oh, very cool. And Mike is the guy that discovers the tapes in the basement, right? He starts kind of uncovering this mystery of this character, you know, Mary Hobbs. And then there's Phil, who you said is David Caruso. Phil just got out of a bad breakup, who is now seeing Hank. Hank. Hank, I love Hank. Yeah. Hank is played by Josh Lucas. Hank is actually dating Phil's ex-girlfriend. He is very, very greedy. And we'll talk about one of the creepy scenes with him later on. And then there is the nephew, Jeff. Not me, but Jeff. And he's and got a Sexton, which is from one of my favorite movies, filmmaker from New Jersey, called Welcome to the Dollhouse. One of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> I've not seen that one. Oh my god, you ever seen Welcome to the Dollhouse? Uh, oh, it's a great movie. But Jeff's got a killer mullet in the movie. Oh hell yeah, oh. bro. He's, he's rocking a Megadeth and smoking meth. Oh yeah. And he is scared of the dark. So all of this crew comes in here. They're gonna clear the asbestos out in a week. That's the goal. They're under a lot of pressure to get the job done. But, of course, we start seeing the, the cracks in the foundation here. All the characters are kind of arguing with each other, right? There's a lot of tension between the characters, specifically between Phil and Hank, right, who have a love interest that's shared. And then also between Mike, who doesn't – Mike doesn't want to be involved in any of this. Mike just wants to go off and research on his own, right? And then there's Jeff, who is kind of this naive – you know, new worker. He's new to the job. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's fucking up everything, right? And then there's Gordon. Gordon's got a lot of stuff going on in the back of his head, right? You can this, tell he's just disturbed the whole time. Yeah, this, this place is really Rest. affecting him. And Mike goes down into the basement, and this is where the story really heats up. He goes down into the basement one day, and he uncovers this one room that has all of these tapes of all these sessions, right? And he finds nine tapes. And the patient's name is Mary Hobbs. And Mary Hobbs suffers from DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. One of her personalities, the malevolent one, is Simon, is the creepiest one of all. Yeah. And Mary Hobbs has been accused of killing her brother and her parents. So... Mike is basically uncovering this mystery. As he's listening to the tapes, the story is playing out with Gordon, and Gordon ties with all of these tapes, right? Can I and tell I'm you something real quick, though? If I was Gordon, I was the foreman on the job, and this fucking crumb is in the fucking back room listening to the tapes and not helping us with this right. weekend. Yeah, I would have fucking beat his ass! Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I would, I probably kill most of these people to be honest, man. <laughs> like I understand why Gordon flips out. You know, these are the laziest motherfucking workers on the planet. One of the standout scenes to me is is Hank. He is greedy as shit, but he goes down to that crematorium at nighttime. What a fucking idiot! He yeah. finds he finds all the silver dollars, right? And he says, "I'm gonna go back to that place at nighttime because that's a great idea." So he goes back to this place, and he's digging in the wall. He sees a shadowy figure, and that's the last we really see of Hank. We do see him a little bit later on in the movie. He's got sunglasses on, and he's staring out a window blabbering about something, right? But it's a creepy fucking movie. I mean, the premise of it is creepy. and it's so creepy because you don't see what's coming. No. You kind of do. That's what you said when, like, you, when you watch it. As you watch it afterwards, like the second or third, you're like, oh, shit, man. It's so fucking like obvious of what's going on. Right. When you first watch it, you're like, what, what, what's happening here? Like, I don't get what's going on. And the thing is, like, Gordon, I think Gordon's the best character in the film. And just his, like, progression throughout the film. Like, you know, everyone's asking about his newborn baby. He has a newborn baby with his right. wife. There's that scene where he pulls up after the after the bid that he makes and he's looking at the house and he right. goes in the house and you hear like, Hi Gordon. Right, right. I made spaghetti or some shit, whatever she was she was boiling water and you know, and then you hear a scream. Right. And then you're like, What the fuck is that? And then it goes back and then you find out like Gordon's like, Oh, you know, I accidentally hit her. I feel bad, I hit her. You yeah. know. He's telling Caruso's love hole that he hit her. And um <laughs> and fuck and he's, you know, and, and you're kind of like sitting there like, all right, like what, what what's happening here? And then as right. the session tapes play, like you're saying, it gets more and more obvious on what's happening here. Right. Gordon, as you progress with the film, like I was saying, you start really thinking like, what's going on with this guy? There's obviously something, there's, there's a missing link going on, right? Right. And uh, dude, my cat just got attacked outside the door. I just heard it. Did you hear that? Yeah, I did. <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was crazy. That's my favorite cat. I want to. I want to go like make sure she's all right. Cat face one. Um. Anyway, so Gordon like starts. You know, you you see like a scold on his thigh, right? right. You know, you you heard it kind of in the background. You heard like a yell and shit. And at at the end of it, you find out that Gordon, it comes over after bed, and uh, his wife is boiling water and he tells her about what's going on he has flowers and um she pours water on his leg accidentally boiling water and he proceeds to beat her and kill her yep and then kill the baby and the dog too i think right did he kill the dog i think so we're gonna stop this now <laughs> we're gonna talk about paul killing <laughs> babies are all right dog yeah, dogs bad. are not <laughs> it's off limits here but Fun of the Hank when he, you know, he was down there and he sees that figure and he's missing. Gordon is the maestro to all this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At the end of it, um, he basically ends up killing his whole crew, right? Including his nephew, uh, which I felt bad for him. He, remember, he like he gets caught in the asbestos, like crazy fucking suit area, and then he's eating powdered donuts. He's oh, like, yeah. yeah. He's, he's calming down eating powdered donuts, like, oh, Oh, thank God! And then he—that's what I—that's that, what I do when I need to calm down. I just like I love fucking that. scarf down some powdered donuts, oh, man. So good. And then the one scene where I really feel bad for a character is Larry Fessenden, who did uh, *Depraved*, which is a cool little little Frankenstein uh, reboot. He's in so much shit; it's fucking unbelievable. Like he was in like *Cabin Fever* two, fucking all these *Law and Order* episodes. He's just the guy that does it all. But, uh, you know, he walks in because he, like, gets called on the job. I... <laughs> and he's walking through the fucking the, the gym. Wrong like, with place, wrong and time. Shit, and gets snuffed. Yeah. Oh, oh, shit. It's Gordon. And you realize Gordon is killing all these people. You know, a lot of people have said that Session 9, there's, there's a lot of connections with older horror movies, right? You have the Roman Polanski you know, connection that Brad Anderson makes. You know, he says that when I was making this movie, I really wanted to make a Roman Polanski type of like character driven movie, right? Like Repulsion or The Tenant, right? So you could definitely see that. 
Um, there was a famous uh, writer. His name is Edward Bryant. And he basically says that Simon, who is this malevolent personality, right, of uh, Mary Hobbes, is a genius loci. Back in ancient Rome, they believed that there were spirits that protected places, right? So Edward Bryant said that Simon is essentially this, like, almost like this genius loci of the the mental asylum, right? Mm. That he's there, and he's a malevolent being, but he's protective of it, right? And, you know, you have, you know, uh, Gordon come in there with his crew, and it awakens something in Gordon, right? Um, you well, also that, that have, original scene. Hello, Gordon. Hello, Gordon. Right, and and you can see that, right? And I I like that angle. You know, I think that's a really good angle. It's it's very horrific, you know. And then they make also some connections to The Shining, um, which I can see. You know, it makes sense because you know the Overlook Hotel is this entity of its own, right? In The Shining. And it basically is this living, breathing thing that sucks you into its history, right? It, it has a life of its own. And uh, this mental asylum that they're going into also has a life of its own. It awakens things and the characters, right? It, it drives them mad. It uh, makes them distrust each other. And uh, as we see in Gordon, Gordon ends up killing his family. And it was after he visited that place, right? So you see a lot of these connections with older, kind of more uh, character-driven horror films. And I think that's what I like about it so much is, you know, you, you have that. It was so different than the horror movies around that time. Yep. You know what I mean? It's so disturbing, too. Like, when um, I think it's the princess comes on. And the princess is the innocence of Mary. Yes. Right? Yes. And I didn't. I didn't really get creeped out. The princess, you know, not too much. And then Billy comes on. Billy's the eyes. Yeah, Billy's creepy. Yeah, Billy's fucking terrifying. Are you kidding me? Billy comes on and he's like talking about like what he saw. Like, oh, I don't want to this anymore. You know, he's he's trying to keep Mary's innocence in there. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, you know, helping out with the princess and everything. And then I remember as a kid, man, the first time I watched it, and it just breaks into Simon. Oh, but yeah. Is, no, I don't want to talk. I don't want Simon to talk. And all of a sudden you hear like, Hello, Doc. Simon. You know who I am. Billy has told me a lot about you. Billy is a smart boy. What happened on Christmas night in Lowell? Use your imagination. I'd rather you tell me, Simon. And when it goes over, I remember getting like really like, I wouldn't say nauseated, but I remember watching it the first time and it goes over the the Christmas Eve part. And when you think of Christmas Eve, you think of like, family and happiness and, and wonder and like shit like that for Christmas, you know, the Christmas spirit. And then you hear about how she just murders her fucking parents and her and her fucking brother. Right. Life. I told him to cut her up good, Doc. Yeah. Cut him up good. And like there's fucking it's just it's so fucking well, and, and the voice the voices are so creepy too because because the voice like warbles. You know what I yeah. mean? And it and it it, it it changes in pitch sometimes, and it, it has that kind of you know it plays on the background too. That's the thing about it is you don't ever see any reenactments. You see some pictures, you know what I mean, of yeah. the of the files, but you don't ever see any reenactments of it being acted out. You just hear it, and and that's kind of getting into the production of it. You know, Brad Anderson was really big on the sound of this movie. And the sound acts, you know, as almost like this narration, you know, of, of the film. It carries it along. And, what, right. And, and you know, you hear a lot of Mary Hobbs, like when she's describing things, it goes back to Gordon. 
you know what I mean? It goes yep. back to Gordon and you see, you know, watching it a second or a third time, I saw that connection that I didn't see the first time. But you see that connection and you're like, oh, you know, this is something uh, universal. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the I remember when we brought up the hor- uh, the sounds of horror, the episode we did, like, I think two episodes ago. You brought up session nine. That's what made us do this episode. And I remember, like, when you brought it up, I started hearing the songs in my head. Yeah. Holy shit, man. That was really wild. It brings such a really, like, like almost this, like, dark, chaotic feeling to yourself when yeah. you listen to that soundtrack, you know? Right. Well, you know, and I think it, it, it really hits on the atmosphere of the place. There was, um, a place that I went to that me and my friends used to frequent quite a bit in like 2005 when I was are in you, college. Are you a dirty urban explorer? I mean, I've been to some places before, but you're a but, splunker. Yeah, yeah, I'm a splunker. Yeah, like the people that Brad Anderson meets. Yeah, you a <laughs> I'm a, I'm definitely a splooger. Yeah, every right, day, cool. man. Let's make it short. Before but, uh, you go any further, I have to make sure. <laughs> but uh. But definitely, uh, this place that we went to, it was the Ypsilanti State Mental Asylum. And it was in Michigan, and uh, we used to go there quite often. You know, we would just, like, go there on the weekend and just visit and uh, walk around and see what we could find. Well, the Ypsilanti State Mental Asylum, um, you had to walk about a half a mile to get there, okay? You had to walk through woods. They had security that would, like, prowl around, right? But this place was closed since the early 90s, you know, since deinstitutionalization, right? So we would go in there and all the stuff like Brad Anderson is talking about in his interview. There were chairs, there were stretchers, desks, files, everything. It was all in there. And you would just walk around. They had tunnels and stuff that you could go into. Really, really creepy atmosphere in this place. What was even creepier was at Ypsilanti State Mental Asylum they had a women's prison that was connected to it and the women's prison was closed down. It was not operational at all. So we snuck into the women's prison and we actually almost got locked inside because we were going through doors after doors after doors. Right. And we eventually got to the prison cell area and the prison cells were not like you see in the movies. They didn't have like the bars, you know, it was just like a door with a window on it. But they had, like, stuff inside the rooms. There were, like, tennis shoes, clothes. It looked almost like a a post-apocalyptic movie where everyone just left. But all the stuff was still there. That's wild. So we almost got locked in there, though, because we we kept going in door after door after door. The doors were closed behind us. Yeah, we went there. And, and, you know, when I was reading this interview with Brad Anderson about him going to Danvers... It brought back a lot of those memories. And I, that's what I think is so cool about this movie is that before he started shooting this movie, he wanted to visit the location. He said that he drove by this location on a constant basis, right? When he was living in Massachusetts, he drove by this place. It creeped it, it creeped him out. So when he was making, you know, writing the script for the movie, he based it around this place. And then him and um, the writer who plays Mike, Steven Jevedon, they actually went to this place and they met with some of the um, local kids, you know, the teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. And they would go there and he actually took a tour with these kids late at night. And he talked about how creepy this place was, how late at night. That's insane. I would not do that. Well, that's what we did. You know, when I went to Ypsilanti State Mental Asylum, that's what you do. You go at nighttime, you go with flashlights and these places have no lights inside at all. You know, you, you're going underground where the moonlight isn't even hitting. So it's creepy as shit. And that's what I think is so cool about this movie, though, is that he felt the environment of this place. He described Danvers as a vast cathedral of pain. Holy shit. Yeah, that's what he described it as. So David Caruso said that when he was filming, that it was a very scary place. He said that, you know, normal sets, you know, you're having fun. When he was filming this, it wasn't very fun because you could feel the pain of this place. Mm-hmm. And the guy that played uh, Gordon, I forget his name, Peter something, I believe, 
Um, he actually, there's a scene on the top of the of the Danvers uh, asylum, and he even said he felt like there was something in his head saying, like, what would happen if I jumped off this building right now? Right. Like, he, didn't, he wasn't going to jump off, but there was something in his head that was making him say, I should jump off this building to see how everyone reacts. Right. Which is just... It goes into the ending of that film. That that ending quote is just so fucking creepy, and it goes right into that like mindset of what he did, it, or oh, yeah. what he, what he thought he wanted to do. You know what I mean? So oh, absolutely. And it's it's a movie. You know, like we said, it's um, you know, I didn't really pick it up on the pick pick up the message on the first watch, um, but reading the interview kind of helped explain that a little bit. You know, Brad Anderson when he was writing this movie. You know, they didn't have to use any set pieces. They literally just went in there and they used what was available to them. Yeah. There was only a few things that they added in. Like there was a few, like they added in, I think like a couple like uh, tables in a certain scene, right. a few things here and there, but everything was like straight up natural in that area. Yeah. Like he said that, you know, the, the room where Mike finds the tapes, they treated that room. You know what I mean? But he said, you know, they found medical records of these people that were there before, you know, actually at Danvers, right? Um, The scene where Gordon goes into Mary's room and he has all the stuff pasted to the wall, right? They treated that room, obviously. But for the most part, they just went to this location. The state government allowed them to go in there and uh, they just filmed. And that's what I think is so awesome about it is it's very natural. That's the ultimate, like, uh, I mean, I don't know what the budget was, but that's like an ultimate low-budget fantasy. And talking about actors, uh, the, the article you sent me, I don't know if anyone watches uh, Tim and Eric, um, but one of my favorite people to quote and to, and to try to act like him is Dr. Steve Brule, who's played by John C. Riley. And John C. Riley was the first person to be considered for the role of Gordon. Which yeah. I think is phenomenal because I think of him as Steve Brule. I, I like when I read that today, I started laughing. I was eating fucking Indian food, laughing my ass off. Like, yo, I can see this like as a comedy now almost. With but John see, that's C. the thing. I'm glad, I'm glad John C. Riley didn't do it because yeah. I associate John C. Riley with like comedy role. It would have been very hard for me to not see John C. Riley, you know, as a comedy actor in this movie. He that's why I'm gl- drama film though. I will give him this perfect storm when he died. Oh yeah, that's true. That man. was a good, that was a good death scene by him. Yeah. Well, but- and then after, after John C. Riley, they also uh, wanted Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, full, full metal jacket, you know, and chained. Yeah. It chained. Um, that movie don't get talked enough about either. I feel like the guy that took the role is, you know, really uh peter peter mullen is is. gordon fleming and i feel like he killing baby killing dog killing cocksucker but that's what i like about it though is because i didn't recognize him in it you know what i mean i i it was the only person i really recognized was david caruso and josh lucas of course too you know i'm gonna tell you what what like the thing about gordon is like i'm from south jersey uh, outside of philadelphia and like the unions are huge around here trade unions and right. uh, he reminded me of this, like my buddy's dad, like somebody that you would see, like my dad, like a, just like a blue collar union worker that like works his balls off, gets kicked in the face daily right? and finally loses his shit. That's what scared me about it. You know what I mean? And like it goes into that ending scene where you hear what he did. Right. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big guy on, you know, I love a Serbian film. Right. I love necromantic but um i love gore i love disturbing shit and i love seeing it too i like to you know please my eyes a little bit but this scene you don't see anything you just hear it and when you hear it it makes you more disturbed than any fucking movie you will see in a long time in my opinion i think it's it's just one of those movies that resonates it 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 sits with you for a very long time the biggest thing for like session i for me is like it could happen to anyone yeah. Anyone. yeah. Anyone. I remember when I walked up. All right, so we're going to get to the ending quote here. And you, you, after you know what Gordon did and all this other shit, it gets to that one long, the original, the original shot of the chair 
It yep. goes back to that. And you hear this water dripping. And you hear... And where do you live, Simon? I live in the weak and the wounded. Dog. I remember being in my bedroom. And I remember digesting this movie as a kid, teenager. And I just thought, like, that's the scariest thing. Because out of nowhere, my mental stability could break. And I could murder my parents. You know what I mean? Like, I, I could do something I don't want to do. But, like, the stress or whatever is happening in my mind, my mental stability is going to get all fucked up. And something's going to happen. And there's people that literally, like, you, you've I've seen documentaries where you ask them like why did you do this and they say i don't know i don't know why i did this and that's simon talking basically yeah well and that's it kind of begs the question of like is there a simon within all of us yes you know i believe there is you know and that's kind of the debate with session nine is is simon a malevolent force that lives at the hospital is he like this demon that possesses you to do bad things or is Simon just this universal darkness within all of us? You know, Brad Anderson would have agreed with you. Brad Anderson would say that Simon is essentially the name of the darkness that's within all of us, that, that we we don't tap into it, right? Gordon taps into it because of the conditions that he's in. He is in a, he's a new parent, which is, you know, I, I have three kids, as you know. It's stressful. It's stressful, you know, as, as everyone knows, you know, having a job and trying to make money, trying to make ends meet, right? Having a house, you know, everyone knows that, that stress. And uh, is it because of those conditions? And now he has this job that he said that he would complete in a week, which he knows he's not really capable of doing, but he's going to do it anyways. Does he crack under this pressure and this all happens, right? And I think that's what's so cool about this movie is that it, it touches upon kind of these these themes of like we have this darkness inside all of us, right? And like you were saying, at any moment our our mental stability could just crack, and we could do something horrific. My you thing know? is like with, with with Simon is like so like take a uh, take Stephen King, the books that he writes is his Simon. Yeah, absolutely. There's different ways to result into like somebody like talking to you that that general entity of darkness. You could put it like think of some of our uh, favorite directors, like uh, not even favorite directors, but just like extreme horror. Somebody had to have that idea in his head, and they're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Like, I don't want to do this in real life, so I'm going to put it on film. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So like. It's wild to me because, like, the movie hits home in so many different places, and it's it's such a scary, scary film. So there was a apparent subplot in this movie that Brad Anderson wrote in the script, and he was basing it on the experiences of Danvers that ex-patients would actually return to the hospital and try to live there because they didn't have anywhere else to go, right? So Brad Anderson actually wrote a store, uh, a side character into the script, and it was a former patient of this place. And he was throwing her in there as a red herring, basically, to throw off viewers. So they didn't know who was committing the crimes or who was committing the murders. They didn't know if it was ghosts or if it was this female patient, right? And she was just going to kind of show up in random spots, which I think would have been really creepy. You know what I mean? I really wish she kind of would have kept that in there. But uh, lo and behold, he he basically had to write it out of the script and uh, didn't film it. So that is one of the subplots that did not make it into the movie was this former patient that was wandering around. So who knows? It might have been, you know, a little bit of a different movie, you know, seeing that kind of different subplot thrown in there. I love I love a good red herring. Yeah, dude, everyone does. It's a it's it's a very engrossing experience, and that's what I you know. Uh, Second Sight is getting ready to release. Yes, the new release, right? Yes, news all. Yeah. fucking I up. mean, I'm pretty pumped because I was looking at upgrading to the Scream Factory edition, yeah. and then Second Sight announced 
their edition, which is going to be fucking awesome. I'm hoping for a lot of new features because you know what? It's been 20 years since the movie has been released. So it's the 20th anniversary. So yeah, I'm hoping it's it's a really, really good release, but um, it deserves it. And it's a movie that's not super talked about. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, you talk to people like me, you or a few others. We love it. But it's a movie that I just feel like people have misinterpreted. They've misunderstood. They go into it with the wrong mentality. And it's a movie that if you're one of those people, please go rewatch it. Do yourself the favor. Put your phone away. Turn your phone off. Turn the lights down. Turn the sound up. You know what I mean? Do what you got to do. your screen, Blu-ray. Yeah, like, and just watch the movie and get engrossed in the atmosphere of it because it is a great fucking movie. It's effective it's well and it done. really, it, it's well done. It sticks with you. Fucking so well done, dude. Yeah, it sticks and, with uh, you. You know, it, I, I really take, there's certain things like, listen, I, I watch a lot of shitty movies. When people are like, ah, oh, that movie sucks. I don't take it personal. But someone says Session 9 sucks, I almost take it personal. I'm like, no, no, no. You yeah. just don't understand Session 9. <laughs> I'm a little fucking goosed up. Anyway, I'm hammered drunk, and uh, I gotta be honest with you. Where do you live? I live in the weak and go fuck yourself. Let me take a piss in my mouth right. real quick. <laughs> the wolf man! The wolf man!